Hebrews 6, we'll begin reading in verse 9. You can follow along in your copy of God's Word. Hebrews 6, verse 9. This is the Word of the Lord. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray together. Father God, we do thank you that you have brought us together this morning, that we can open your word and read it, and rejoice in it, to sit under the preaching of your word. Father, we pray that your spirit would work in our midst, that you would be working in our hearts to bring change, to bring transformation from death to life for those who do not know you. We pray, Lord, that you would encourage and edify uh, us as a church family this morning by it. We thank you for your love that you demonstrated to us in sending your son to die on the cross for our sins. We thank you for your faithfulness to us, and we pray that you would continue to show that even as we sit and listen and learn from your word this morning. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, there are some things, there's some things that keep me up at night that shouldn't, especially at this time of year. Puzzles. I love doing a good Christmas puzzle. And there are definitely nights, kids go to bed, I sit down at the kitchen table, I think I'm going to do it for like half an hour. And I keep having this refrain in my head, just one more piece, just one more piece, just one more piece. And all of a sudden, the section I was working on, I'm now working on another section and another, and it's two in the morning. And I just lost track of time. Puzzles don't keep my wife up at night. Casey does not care about puzzles. We do not share in that hobby together. But she does care about books, novels especially, good books Good books keep Casey up at night. Many a times, I have rolled over in bed, looked at the clock. It's 2 in the morning. Why is the room still kind of lit up? Because Casey's still reading a book. She can't put it down. And oftentimes, those good books have cliffhangers. It's like the one more piece of a puzzle. Just one more chapter. Just one more chapter. And all of a sudden, she stayed up too late because of her book. Well, we left off with a bit of a cliffhanger last Sunday. It's why we read some of those verses that we had already had preached last week. Maybe you thought, like, wait a sec, these aren't the verses. 
Did Colin prepare a sermon that was the same as last week? Is he mistaken? No. Our passage left us wanting more. If you look back at verse 12, instead of being sluggish, we were called to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. That should have left us with some questions. What promises? Who inherits these promises? Who gives these promises? And can we be sure that the giver of those promises is going to keep up his end of the bargain? Can we be sure that he will bring those promises to pass? So if my perseverance in the faith that I'm called to in Hebrews 6, if my perseverance in the faith is motivated by these promise-inheriting people, then I need some answers. And this morning, the writer of Hebrews is giving us those answers. The writer of Hebrews has been operating on a big assumption throughout this letter. Here's the assumption. God is trustworthy. God is trustworthy. Big assumption. It's true. Now the writer of Hebrews says, but I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you that this is true. God is trustworthy. Now there's a lot that is hanging on the trustworthiness of God. If God is not trustworthy, we have some real problems. That full assurance of hope that we unpacked last week, well, now it's not looking so sure. It's not looking so full. And so there's not much motivation, as verse 12 says, to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. If God isn't trustworthy, then how can I be sure that he'll keep those promises? That's a big deal. We've got lots of promises in the Bible. Promises that we cling to. Promises that we're banking our life on. From Genesis to Revelation, God has been saying, I am going to bring about the salvation of my people from their sins. We're clinging to that. I am clinging to the new hope of the new heavens, the new earth. I'm clinging to that day when I'll stand before God and I'll see him face to face. And my name is going to be plastered on his forehead because I belong to him. I need those promises. But if God isn't trustworthy, how can I know? What if none of that comes about? What if none of that comes to pass? If we can't trust God, then our faith crumbles. Might as well turn off these lights. Might as well board up the windows and the doors. No point coming to this place, gathering together as the people of God, if we have no reason to worship, no reason to believe, no reason to cling. So the author of Hebrews anticipates this concern. He knows that it is a big deal if God isn't trustworthy. He knows that it is a big deal if God doesn't keep his promises. So he makes this point very clear. We can trust God. And he gives us three proofs. Three proofs that God is trustworthy. Let's look at that first proof together. Proof number one. We can trust God because God has sworn by an oath. We can trust God because God has sworn by an oath. Look again at verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. Then jump down to verse 16. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. 
So I remember growing up as a kid, there were times that other children, not me, other children would make rash vows. They would say foolish things if they really wanted us to believe them. So if we're sitting around and a kid says, hey, this happened, and all of us are like, nah, that didn't happen, the kid will swear on a grave of somebody they should never swear on. And then as a kid, you're like, oh, they mean business. Like, whoa, this kid really wants us to believe him. Because did you hear what he just did? Rash, foolish, disrespectful. But that kid, there was weight behind his words because of what he said. In a more positive sense, as adults, we take oaths. If you ever have to give testimony in a court, you raise your right hand and you say, I swear by God Almighty that I will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. In the Old Testament, people did similar things. In the Old Testament, they would make promises. And to demonstrate just how serious they were about keeping their promises, they would swear by an oath. The author of Hebrews says, an oath is final for confirmation. And in swearing by that oath, you would always appeal to someone greater than yourself. For example, when Abraham had his servant go back to the land of Mesopotamia to find a wife for his son Isaac, Abraham had his servant swear by an oath. You can listen to Genesis 24, beginning in verse 2. Abraham says, put your hand under my thigh. I never will do that for anybody. Put your hand under my thigh. But that's what they did back then. That I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites. So Abraham had his servant swear by someone greater than himself. He swore by God that he was going to keep his word. I'm going to go back. I'm going to find a wife for your son. I swear as I'm clinging to the bottom of your thigh. I swear. He swears by God. So God swears by an oath as well in the book of Genesis. He swears by an oath that he will keep his word to Abraham. It happens in Genesis 22. God puts Abraham to the test. God had told Abraham to offer up his son as a sacrifice. God then provided a ram so that Abraham did not have to go through with it. But Abraham was willing. He was ready. He passed the test. Isaac was spared. Now at the end of this passage, beginning in verse 16, God says this, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. That's different. That's different than when Abraham's servant swore by an oath. That's different than when anyone else in the Bible swore by an oath. The writer of Hebrews tells us that that God doesn't make oaths the way that we do. Because God has no one greater than himself to swear by. There is no one greater than God. So God goes ahead in Genesis 22 and he swears by himself. Only God could do that and it make any sense at all. And in doing that, God is saying, I'm serious about what I'm saying. You can bank on my words. That's the first proof that God is trustworthy because God swore by an oath. So as we look to God and we consider, can I believe that those promises that I'm going to inherit with your people that I'm imitating, can I believe that that's true? The first proof that we can believe that's true, is that God swore by an oath. Let's look at the second proof. Proof number two. 
We can trust God because God cannot lie. All right, this is in verse 18. When, when God swore by an oath, that was really, that was over the top. God doesn't need to swear by an oath because God's word is absolutely sufficient. If God says something, we should believe, we should expect it will come to pass. Something that we rejoice in, that we're thankful for, like salvation, but also when God says that he will judge the wicked for their sins, we should take that to heart as well. That is a serious warning because God does what he says. How can we know? Because, verse 18 says, God cannot lie. It is impossible for God to lie. It runs completely counter to the nature of God. It is not like God operates under some standard by which that standard says, God, you're not going to be able to lie. That's not how this works, because God is the standard. God is the one by which all statements of truth are compared. So God is the standard, and God is true. In him there is no falsehood. Therefore, God cannot lie. Because God only does that which is according to his nature. So if if God is true, then it follows God tells the truth. That is all that God does. It is impossible for God to lie. We lie. We say things that are false. We do it sometimes to avoid consequences, like getting in trouble. We also lie to gain benefit. We fudge the truth so we can get something. So when that kid that I was talking about from my childhood, when that kid foolishly swears by an oath, that still isn't like totally persuasive. Because especially if that kid's lied before, all of us other kids are like, yeah, but you got a track record. So you may be swearing, which you shouldn't be doing. You might do that, but like, I'm still not sure that I believe you. Because we know that you've, you've lied before. So you might be swearing by that oath just because you really want us to believe you. You want to be convincing. doesn't mean that it's the truth. Because it's possible for kids to not tell the truth. And kids... It's possible for adults to not tell the truth. We lie. Not so with God. God doesn't do any of that. God only tells the truth, and all that God says conforms to reality because reality conforms to God and his word. So when God says that he's going to do something, we believe him. It's not even in the realm of possibilities that God would lie. We trust that he will do just as he says, because it is impossible for God to lie. That's proof number two. Let's consider proof number three, that God is trustworthy. Proof number three, that God is trustworthy, because God kept his promise to Abraham. So we have an example here of God's trustworthiness. Look back with me again at verse 13. I know we've read it, but we need to see it again now with this third proof. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. Okay, now verse 14. Here's where we see the proof come to pass. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. So what God said held 
God is trustworthy because he kept his promise to Abraham. Now those words that the writer of Hebrews quotes, remember they're from Genesis 22. We read that just a a bit ago. Surely I will bless you and multiply you. But this is a promise that God had made to Abraham even before Genesis 22. All through the book of, of Genesis, God makes promises that he reiterates, that he expands upon to Abraham throughout Abraham's lifetime. So the first time that God made a promise to Abraham was actually in Genesis 12. This is where he first appears to Abraham. And here is what he says to him in Genesis 12, beginning in verse 1. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God comes to Abraham and he says, I'm going to make a great nation of you. I'm going to make many people come from you. And then through this great nation that I make of you, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth. I mean, this is going all the way back to Genesis 3.15. Adam and Eve have sinned in the garden. We are now living in a sin-cursed world. We are, are condemned to death apart from any saving work that God would then do for us. If we don't have that saving work, we're done for. What does God say in Genesis 3.15? He's going to send the, the offspring of Eve to crush the head of the serpent. Of the serpent. He's going to crush the head of the serpent. That is like the first taste of the gospel. That God has a plan for redemption in place already. Here we go. How is he going to fulfill that plan? Starts with Abraham. Because through Abraham, God is going to make him a great nation. And from that great nation, God is going to bless the families of the earth. Genesis 3.15, we're starting to see it unfold. So then God takes that initial promise in Genesis 12. He makes it into a covenant a more formal binding relationship in Genesis 15. And then in Genesis 17, he repeats the promise again. And he expands on the promise again. Listen to Genesis 17. Verse 1. I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then jump down to verse 6. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, And I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So now he's saying kings are going to come from you. You're going to have so many descendants, all of this land of promise. I'm going to give all of this to you. He's repeating and he's expanding from Genesis 12. And then we get to Genesis 22. And we're going to read a little bit more of it than we read before. Genesis 22. Here is where the author of Hebrews was quoting from. Beginning in verse 16. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this, and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have, you have obeyed my voice. So what did God promise to Abraham? He promised a great nation. 
that would then be the means by which God would bless all the families of the earth. Now, how would Abraham become a great nation? How is God going to fulfill this promise to Abraham? He gave him a son, Isaac. Isaac is the starting point of all of God's promises being fulfilled. Now, Abraham didn't see all of those promises fulfilled in his lifetime. When Abraham died, he only had a few descendants. When Abraham died, he only had a little piece of land that was a burial plot in the promised land. So Abraham didn't see all of the promises God made to him come to pass in his life, but he saw one, especially this one, his son Isaac. This son through whom God said, I'm going to bring all of those promises, all of the promises that your descendants will inherit from me, starts with you having this son, Isaac. Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And God will bless and multiply, starting with Isaac. Now, Abraham absolutely did have to wait patiently. When God first promised to Abraham in Genesis 12, until the time that Isaac was born, 25 years passed. He waited 25 years. And this wasn't like 25 years in the prime of Abraham's life. This is when Abraham was 75, till Abraham was 100. So Abraham was no spring chicken. It's the mild way to put it. He was an old man. Old men don't often have children, especially old men who also have wives who are old. Sarah was 90 when she had Isaac. So this isn't just about the length of time that Abraham and Sarah had to wait patiently. This is about the time of life that they waited in. The clock was most definitely ticking, and they knew it. Yet God fulfilled his promise. Abraham had a son, and through that son, Abraham would become the father of a great nation. Now, one last wrinkle to this story that we need to talk about to see just how God kept his promise to Abraham. So in Genesis 22, where the author of Hebrews is quoting from, Genesis 22, we have to remember that this is a huge deal, that Abraham would be willing to offer up his son Isaac on the altar. That alone, being asked to offer up your son, that that I, I cannot fathom the thought of that. But on top of that, this was not only his son, which is grave enough, but this is the the fulfillment of the promises that God had made in front of Abraham's face. God, you're asking me to offer up my son. And you're making me put on the line, like, the fulfillment of your promises. In fact, Abraham, the writer of Hebrews later says, so we'll hear this at a later time, Abraham believed God would raise Isaac from the dead. Because Abraham knew God is trustworthy. God is going to keep his promises. I can bank on that. So I don't know how he's going to do it, because this, this is not how I would envision it. But, but however this is going to come to pass, he's going to make sure his promises are kept. Because God is trustworthy. And so as we're reading Hebrews chapter 6, and we come to this point in the letter, in the, in the book, we see this third proof. God is trustworthy. Because he showed his trustworthiness in the lives of those who have gone before us. So we can trust God with our lives too. So we've seen three proofs this morning. God swore by an oath, God cannot lie, and God kept his promise to Abraham. That is layer upon layer of evidence that God is trustworthy. 
Now, we just had Thanksgiving. We're entering into the Christmas time of year, so let's talk about presents. My grandfather, when he gave gifts, he taped those presents like crazy. He had to use like a spool of tape for every gift that he wrapped. There was not one crease that was left untaped. There was nowhere to actually get your fingers under the gift to open it. It was like, why? Why did you do this? You could ship a gift that he gave anywhere around the world. It could be dented, dinged, damaged, completely smashed to smithereens, but it would still be wrapped. It would still be contained in that gift-wrapped paper because he wrapped it with layer upon layer upon layer of tape. And truly, it felt like overkill. Every time, it's like, why? I, like, and I, I, we had a good relationship, so I would tell him, like, Papa, please, don't wrap my gift so much. Like, it's okay. It's going to be fine. It was, he, he, it, was, it was overkill on every wrap job. Maybe you are feeling in this moment, this feels like overkill on the trustworthiness of God job. Like, why are we giving so much time to the fact that God is trustworthy? Here's the simple answer. Because the writer of Hebrews did. He wanted us to see. He wanted us to know. He wanted us to have certainty. God can be trusted. So then the question of, well, now what? If God is trustworthy, how then should I live? So we've got a three-point sermon right here. God swore by an oath. God cannot lie. God kept his promise to Abraham. But if you're keeping track of time, we're like 20 minutes in. So we got two more bonus, bonus points. Okay, So really five-point sermon. But the bonus points are a little bit different. We have two things that we can be confident of. If God is trustworthy, and he is clearly, then there are two things that we can be confident of. Confidence number one. We can be confident that we are safe. We can be confident that we are safe. Our trustworthy God gives us shelter. Our trustworthy God gives us relief. The writer of Hebrews describes it as refuge. I always love it when um, we sing a song and the songs are picked by whoever's preaching. Uh, I love when we sing a song that we didn't even anticipate would tie to the sermon as well as it did. So I picked How Firm a Foundation thinking, that's a good song for a sermon about God's trustworthiness. Uh, Little did I know or think about the fact that it literally says in the song, to you who have fled for refuge to Jesus. That's, That's like stripped straight from Hebrews. Verse 18. Let's read that again. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. All right, kids, here's your question. 20 minutes in, you ready for it? Are we ready? Have you guys ever played the game, the floor is hot lava? You guys like that game? My kids like to play that game in our basement. For all of us adults who don't know what the game is, self-explanatory, the floor is hot lava, hello. So what you do is you put out, like, you know, couch cushions, pillows, blankets, but you can't make the blankets too big because then it's not very challenging. And you have all these objects strewn about the room, and you have to find ways to jump and crawl and get to the the next object, perhaps even go around a table, as Natalie Gerber is very good at. You may have to do all kinds of crazy things to avoid touching the floor. Because, kids, the floor is what? It's lava. The floor is lava. 
My kids go to such lengths. They take such great care to avoid touching the floor. And the floor is not hot lava. It's just a made-up game that we enjoy playing. But it's not hot lava. There's safety if you touch the floor. The moment mom says dinner's ready and they're excited about whatever we're having for dinner, the game, they don't even say, okay, let's stop. They just jump up and go. And it's like, wait a sec. When did the floor transform? When did it, when did it uh, whatever lava does, solidify? Uh, when did that happen? So kids, when they play the floor is hot lava, it's a made-up game. They go to gr- such great care to not touch the floor. We don't live in a fantasy world. And yet people play the game, the floor is hot lava, with their lives all the time. There is far more at stake in this life than stepping off a couch cushion into imaginary lava. It is unsafe in the most severe of ways. Read the book of Proverbs. Proverbs often talks about the foolish and the wicked devising evil schemes. Evil schemes to fulfill their selfish ambitions. Evil schemes to to indulge in sinful pleasure. And yet... In Proverbs, over and over again, their end is destruction. We just looked at Psalm 1 in Sunday school. And we saw the way of the wicked perish. They perish. They are playing that the the floor is hot lava, and they don't even know it. They are just walking all over the floor, paying no attention to where the couch cushions are or the pillows are. Danger is all around. Death and destruction await those who continue in their rebellion against God. That is another promise. That is God's sure word. It is the end for those who go their own way. And so if you're not in Christ this morning, if you're not in Christ, this is your fate. This is your fate if you continue in your rebellion against God. And yet, There is safety. There is security. But there's only one place that you can find it. There is relief found in Christ. Flee to Him as your refuge. Turn from your sinful ways. Repent of your sin. Trust in Christ today. Believe the good news that He died on the cross for your sins and rose again. And if you are in Christ today, you are safe. You are safe. You have fled for refuge by the grace of God. And you have found it in a God who is trustworthy. We've talked about stories with cliffhangers this morning. How about stories with a twist? Who doesn't love a story with a twist? It is rare that you will find a story where non-main characters at the beginning of the story who are presented as righteous and good and trustworthy, prove to be that through the story. If somebody seems like they're just awesome at the beginning of the story, that's probably like the, bo- the boss villain. Like, that's the worst of the worst. They're going to turn on their friend. So when their friend is, like, fleeing the villains, and then that guy comes up in his car, and the friend jumps in the car and thinks, I'm safe, and then they don't take the turn home. They're like, wait a sec, we're not going home? Where are we going? And, like, that's the boss. That's the bad guy right there. That's the twist. So often in those stories, the character thinks, I'm safe, I'm secure, I'm with this good person. And that person proves to not be trustworthy. Not so with God. God is not untrustworthy. 
Our hearts, untrustworthy. The world, untrustworthy. The devil, untrustworthy. The aim of all three of those enemies, the aim is to deceive and lead away. They all will coax us with reassuring words. Hey, hey, safety is found with us. Security. Let us be your refuge. But only death and destruction await. Um, If you're not familiar with The Hobbit, then I apologize. But I am currently reading The Hobbit. It's not keeping me up super late at night. I love the book, but it's not like I'm not staying up too late. Uh, but, but the part in the book where, where, Fro, where Frodo, I'm reading The Hobbit, uh, where Bilbo and, and all the dwarves, they go to the cave for shelter. And they're in the cave. This book was written like 70 years ago, so if you haven't read it, it's on you. Uh, they go to this cave for shelter, and what happens in that cave? They think the storm can't get us. We're safe. Secret passageway to like the den of the goblins. Not what you want. There was not safety found there. There is no no trap door with God. There is no back door to death and destruction that awaits with him. He is fully trustworthy. The audience that this letter was written to, the people that the writer of Hebrews was addressing, they were being fed some lies. They were being fed some lies of their own. They were being told to turn away from Christ. He's not good enough. And they were being told, return to your old way of life. And the writer of Hebrews is telling them, don't do that. Your life depends upon it. God is your safe refuge. You've come to the right place. God is not going to turn on you. He is the hero of the story that you desperately need. Stay in the safety of his shelter. Hold fast to him. I think we can relate. We too are tempted to not believe God. We too are tempted to go back to our old way of life. We're tempted to think God is not good enough. God may not do as he has said in his word, that perhaps God is not our safe refuge. Perhaps there is a trap back door that awaits. The writer of Hebrews is telling us, don't believe those lies. You have every reason to be confident that you are safe. Don't turn to any other refuge. Those refuges will fail. So that's the first confidence that we have because God is trustworthy. Let's look at the second. Confidence number two. We can be confident that we have hope. Follow along as I read the end of the passage, beginning in verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So because we can count on what God says, we have hope. It's not flimsy. It's not a limp hope. It's not a wishful hope. I was going to razz the Lions this morning about how that's a wishful hope that they would win the Super Bowl, but then Steve's Wolverines won yesterday and it just feels like it would fall apart. So, uh, you all know, though, what it's like to have a wishful hope. I wish that tomorrow it would be 70 and sunny. Yeah, it's probably not going to happen, right? That'd be nice, I hope, but I'm not really thinking it's true or that it will happen. Even if the meteorologist said it would, I don't know about that. Not so with God. This is a sure 
confident, grounded hope that we have. Because God has said what he will do, we can trust what he will do. And what has he done? He has given us his son. We have a hope that rests in the finished work of our Savior. God, who is faithful to all of his promises, has fulfilled his promise of salvation. Through Christ, all of the Old Testament promises that God's people down through the ages have clung to. Promises of deliverance from sin. Promises of renewed access to God. Promises of of God dwelling with us forever. Promises that we will be His people and He will be our God. They have been fulfilled. They are being fulfilled in Christ. And so we can look to a future day with certainty. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we now have a high priest. A high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is a bit of a cliffhanger for when we pick up the sermon series in Hebrews in chapter 7. So I'm leaving you with a cliffhanger in our passage too. In short, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that Jesus is greater than any Old Testament priest. All of the Old Testament priests were after the order of Levi. And so they were, they were sinful human men who would go into an earthly sanctuary. And they could only go in there behind the curtain once a year on the Day of Atonement. And even in doing that, they were offering up sacrifice for their own sins and for the sins of the people. But we don't have a high priest who has gone into an earthly sanctuary. We have a high priest who has gone into a heavenly sanctuary. And when it says that he went behind the curtain, this is a priest, an eternal high priest, who has gone into the very presence of the Father, who is now seated at the right hand of his Father. And so he has entered in there, and he's entered in there on our behalf. And now we have, as we heard before, an all-access pass to the Father, Because we've been covered in the blood of his son. And so we now stand faultless before the throne. Not because of anything that we've done. But because of all that he has done for us. So church, persevere to the end. Don't be sluggish. Don't fall behind. Hold fast to the hope that has been set before us. Be as Hebrews Hebrews 6.12 says. Be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is our our strong encouragement this morning from Hebrews. God is trustworthy, and he's proven it, and so we can be confident. We can be confident that we're safe. We can be confident that we have hope. Look to Christ. Look to the one who has gone before us. We're going to remember him in communion. Look to him who is your faithful, great high priest. And don't waver in your faith. Hold fast to the end. Let's pray together. Father God, we are immensely grateful that indeed you have shown us in your word over and over and over again in this passage that we can believe what you have said. You are trustworthy. You don't need to prove yourself to anyone. You are God. We are your creatures. And yet in your kindness, you have showed us, you have demonstrated that you are worthy of trust. And so, Father, we are looking to a future day. We are looking to a day when your Son will return and we will delight in you forever. 
And now as we take communion, Father, we pray that we would look to that future day with great anticipation, with great certainty, with a steadfastness. And because of that, we too would then persevere to the end. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.